I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We'll be continuing, continuing our series through this uh, wonderful letter that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, to his son in the faith, Timothy. Timothy, as many of us uh, probably know by now, was an elder in Ephesus, a pastor there. And as Paul was soon to depart in death, um, he is encouraging Timothy to maintain the truth of the gospel that he's been entrusted with, the gospel that centers on the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and to proclaim that gospel, no matter the consequences, no matter what shame comes with that from the world, that Timothy is to endure as he looks forward to one day reigning with Christ. That is the basic path of the Christian life, as Paul's going to explain to Timothy here. If we endure with him now, we will reign with him in eternity. That's the basic pattern of the Christian life. And so here in Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13, we have, in a sense, the heartbeat of this letter. Uh, Paul opens up for us some of the riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is undergirding Timothy's ministry, but that undergirds the church in every age. Uh, this is, these are the realities that undergird Messiah's Reformed Fellowship today. Uh, these same realities that, Tim, that Paul expounded to Timothy to take courage in and to live upon, so too we, as the Church of God here in New York City in 2023, these same realities undergird us. These are, this is our foundation. And so it's, we uh, do well to understand it and then to live from it as well. So these are some things that'll come out as we, as we look to these verses uh, this morning. Begin reading 2 Timothy chapter 2 at verse 8. Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. So far from God's holy word, let's pray that God might bless his word to us. And also, I just noticed Juliet is here. Uh, so welcome, Juliet. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, we thank you for your word that cuts to our hearts and brings us to know and to live with the Lord Jesus Christ, the living Savior. Father, we pray that as we think upon him, the Lord, the risen one, that we would be encouraged, that we would be comforted, and that your gospel then would be for us a great power in our lives as we seek to live faithfully before your face. In Jesus' name, amen. In Paul's day in the Roman Empire, just much like our own day in 21st century America, truth, and especially religious truth, was often measured by political utility. Throughout the Roman Empire, you had this phrase, the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And Rome, uh, wisely in a sense, uh, allowed peoples to maintain their own religions 
in order that it might keep the peace. Everything was permitted as long as it maintained the peace of the empire. This was a sort of political utility. And it wasn't until a certain religion or a certain group uh, began to revolt that Rome would squash it quickly. But if it was peaceful, if it maintained the empire, then it was permitted. Truth was simply measured by its utility, by its usefulness, by its practical nature in terms of keeping this vast empire together. And that same reality is often what governs our definition of what is true today in the realm of politics and elsewhere. But into the Roman Empire, Christianity emerged. And Christianity brought a new idea, and that idea is that of orthodoxy, which is an interesting word to think about. Ortho means right, um, correct, straight. So there's right. Doxy, we think of the doxology, right? You think of praise, but it also means opinion. And so it brings this notion into this world in which everything was measured by political utility that there is an objective right opinion. Orthodoxy says that not every opinion is valid. Not every opinion is right, but there is indeed a right opinion. That is what Christianity brought. Gerhardus Voss summarizes it this way. He says, now with this notion of orthodoxy, or rather going back a step, he says, here, in the midst of the Roman Empire in our own day, doctrine ceases to be something innocent or indifferent, right? So go back a step here. By saying this notion of orthodoxy, that there is a right opinion, now it became a matter of that right opinion wasn't just a matter of indifference. In fact, it mattered a great deal whether or not somebody had a right opinion or not. Voss says, for the world of antiquity, this was not the case. It measured whether or not the faith was punishable by its political utility. Christianity emerged with the criterion of an absolute truth. And not being in agreement with this truth came to be viewed as sin, and thus it is. Voss goes on to say that we then must confess with shame that the deepest cause of that lack of esteem for doctrine and theology that we lament in American Christianity is a lack of trust in the veracity or the truthfulness of our God and in his infallible revelation. If we believed it, we would think more and with greater liking and maintain the thoughts of God over against the thoughts of the world. You see, Christianity, as Paul is explaining it to Timothy, comes with an absolute truth because it comes with the very word of God. As we said last week, this would sound very proud if what the church brought was simply the words of men or the words of women or the words of people but rather the church brings and is entrusted with and brings to the world the words of God, which we have, as we had just sung before, are eternal, fixed in the heavens. God gives to his church an absolute truth, and Paul is expounding that truth to Timothy in terms of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that gospel then, as we said earlier, forms the very foundation for Timothy's ministry and the church in Ephesus, 2,000 years ago, and that same gospel uh, forms the foundation of Messiah's Reformed Fellowship in every church that is to be a true church in the 21st century. That word, as an absolute truth, 
is our foundation that is unshakable. Our foundation that the world may rage against but cannot be moved. It's our foundation that God has laid and not man. And that's what Paul is proclaiming to Timothy. And so he says, whatever may come as a consequence of holding fast to that absolute truth, holding fast to this gospel that says that man is a sinner in need of a Savior and that Savior is only Jesus Christ, that absolute truth, no matter what it may cause in your life, whatever problems, whatever shame it may bring in the eyes of the world, Paul says, so be it, hold fast to it. Because by holding fast, by enduring, one day you will come to reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. That basic transition And so as we think about then this absolute truth, the gospel that Paul continues to unfold for Timothy and its implications, uh, there's four things I want us to focus on uh, this afternoon. First, we want to think about the middle of the gospel. Secondly, we want to think about the mystery of the gospel. Thirdly, we want to think about the mission of the gospel. And then finally, uh, we want to think about the mold of the gospel. So the middle, the mystery, the mission, and the mold of the gospel as an absolute truth. So first, we want to think about the middle. A better word would probably be center, or even better, the nucleus of the gospel. Right? The nucleus is that center of an organism, of a thing, that affects everything. Everything is tied to this center. What is the middle, the center, the nucleus of the gospel? Now remember, the gospel is good news. What is the center, the nucleus, the middle of the good news that Paul was entrusted with? It's important for us to recognize that the nucleus is not you. It's not me either. The nucleus of the gospel is not what you have done or what I have done. It's not what I have said or what you have said. It's not your life or my life, but the nucleus of the gospel, the center, the middle of the gospel is none other than Jesus Christ raised from the dead. The nucleus of the gospel, as Paul unfolds to Timothy, is Jesus Christ. It's why he says in verse 8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of of David. Contained within those clauses is a mountain of theology. And a mountain of theology is needed for a people who are in, in the midst of a world that is ever attacking them. Mountains are symbols of strength. And these, the theology that Paul holds before us as an absolute truth is a mountain that stabilizes us and stabilizes the church. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David. When Paul calls Timothy to remember Jesus Christ, the idea of remembering is that his mind would be set, intentionally, consciously set upon Jesus Christ, not just at one point, but throughout his entire life and ministry. At every moment, at every day, Timothy is to think upon Jesus Christ. And to have his mind set upon him as we are to do today as well. And as he thinks upon Jesus Christ, he does not simply think upon Jesus Christ as a good person. He doesn't just put his mind upon Jesus Christ as an inspiring figure. 
He doesn't just put Jesus Christ before his mind as a moral guide or a guru. No, what Timothy is to think upon as he thinks upon Jesus Christ is that he is the one raised from the dead. The language here that Paul is is sort of drawing out is a picture in which you might imagine the entirety of the dead. Um, Every single person who has ever lived has entered the grave at some point, and we're all heading there as well. And Paul is saying that Jesus Christ is to be thought of by you as the one among all the dead who has been raised and never to die again. Paul is not simply thinking upon the event of the resurrection, though that, of course, is in the background. But Paul is highlighting the fact that Jesus Christ is the risen one. As a matter of fact, as an absolute truth, as the the bedrock of his faith and ours, Jesus Christ is the risen ruler. He is the risen one Today, that's where the focus is put upon. The person of Jesus Christ as one raised from the dead, never to die again. Paul is saying, think about him. We can set our minds and think about Taylor Swift as the world seems to be doing recently. But think upon the glory of Jesus Christ. We could think upon our favorite football player. We could think upon our baseball team. We can think upon all of these things, musicians and celebrities, but Paul is saying that our minds ought to be fixed and consumed with one who stands unique against all the glory of this world, over all the people of this world, Jesus Christ, because he alone has been raised from the dead. He alone is death's conqueror who ever lives. He is the risen one. And so, too, as the church of Jesus Christ today, we live, work, study, and play. We, we, we proclaim the gospel. We live as God's people, remembering Jesus Christ, the risen one, raised from the dead. But Paul goes on to say not only Jesus Christ risen from the dead, but also from the offspring of David. Now, where did David come from? Most of us are likely familiar with David, King David of the Old Testament. Remember in First and Second Samuel how the people of Israel desired a king, but they wanted a king like the other nations. And so God gave them Saul. And Saul turned out to be a terrible thing for the people because Saul ultimately did not keep God's ways and his law. He was not a man after God's own heart. The king was meant to represent God. The king was meant to be his vicegerent on earth. But Saul instead purposed his own ways. He did his own things. And so God tells Saul that he is going to rip the kingdom out of his hand and give it to another. And this other is, of course, the shepherd boy, David. God, out of, the, out of Jesse's sons, calls David, who is keeping the sheep, the flocks. And David is anointed to be king of Israel. David is one anointed. But you might ask the question, okay, God is to take the kingdom from Saul. He's to give it to David. Well, how then does that really unfold? Like, how does that take place? Now, you might think in your mind, well, of course, God just simply humiliated Saul and raised David up. But actually, the opposite took place. Saul all of a sudden begins hunting David as David is on his way to the throne. 
And rather than David having a sort of steady incline of glory until he reaches the kingdom, instead David is driven out of the land in humiliation. And the reason that God gave David the kingdom in this way was that David and the people might know that it's not a matter of human strength, and it's not a matter of politics or economics, it's not a matter of utility, but it's a matter of the word of God accomplishing itself. David could be driven out of the land, but God's word held fast. He would be king. And so God defeated Saul and brought back David as a kind of resurrection into the land and made him king over Israel. And as king over Israel, God promised David that he would establish his line forever. And that David would have a son to sit upon his throne and that this this son's kingdom would be everlasting. So fast forward then to what Timothy is told. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Jesus is that son of David, that royal son who would obtain a kingdom that is everlasting and eternal. So that when we think upon Jesus Christ, We think upon him not merely as the risen one, but as the risen ruler. And the one whose rule will have no end. This, Jesus Christ, is the nucleus of the gospel. The middle of the gospel. And as he is then going to shape and mold the life of Paul and of Timothy and the church in Ephesus and in New York City and wherever else the church may be found. This gospel, this Christ, who's at the center is now going to affect everything about the church because the church is founded upon him. That's why we see that Jesus Christ, who obtains this great glory as raised from the dead, as the ruler, obtained it not through an easy life or one of a steady incline of glory, but he achieved it as one who entered the grave, as one who was brought low. And in being brought low, he was then raised. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, implies that he was once among the dead. And so, too, this is going to be a great comfort, as we're going to see, for Timothy, for Paul, and for us as well. Because Paul was himself to suffer and die for this gospel. Timothy was to be shamed by the world and potentially killed as well. And so, too, God's church is told throughout this word that until Christ comes again, the basic normal mode of operation for his church is one in which we suffer for the gospel. When the church is not suffering, it's actually an abnormality at present until Christ comes again. And it's because Christ is the nucleus. Christ as one who died and was raised, so to his church follows him. And so that is the nucleus of the gospel. Secondly, we want to think about then the mystery of the gospel, and we've been kind of getting into this point already. Notice what Paul says in verse 9. He says, For which, right, so he has this gospel in which there is Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, never to die again, and you might say, or ask the question, what then are the consequences of that? Well, it's actually a great mystery. 
because you might assume that means the church triumphs and has dominion now. That means the church uh, prospers now. That means that it's glory now. That means, right, Jesus is risen now. For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. What a mystery. The risen Lord, the ones who follow him, Paul as his servant, as his apostle, is one who is suffering, one who is literally chained as a criminal, and one who is viewed in the eyes of the Roman Empire as one who is an enemy to be despised and ultimately done away with. You see, Paul is reminding us of Jesus' own words that the servant is not above his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Now, the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead does not mean that his people circumvent suffering, as Paul didn't, but it means that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial, in the midst of hardship, we are sustained and we have a great hope and Christ is with us, keeping us upright. That's this great strength and the mystery because from the appearance of things, Paul's gospel doesn't seem all that great. The appearance of things finds a man proclaiming good news in chains. But with eyes of faith, Paul is one who we can look upon as a man who has great power and great glory because he has been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul reveals more of the mystery here in that while he is bound as its messenger or as its herald, as he calls himself, though he is bound, the word itself continues to go forth. Paul's eyes are not necessarily on his chains, though he does direct Timothy's eyes to them because the world and others have looked upon them and run away from him because of them. But rather, Paul's eyes ultimately pierced through those chains to the power of God in the gospel. As he wrote to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And so Paul recognized the power of the gospel as it advances through suffering, as it advances through hardship, as God's people are brought through it, so too the gospel advances in such a manner. Martin Luther had said, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. And so what we begin to see something of the mystery of the gospel is that the word of God retains its power under all circumstances. The word of God is not more effective when the church is prospering. The word of God is not more effective when the church is in a good social standing with the world. No, the word of God retains its powers under all circumstances. If its messenger is imprisoned, if its messenger is in chains, if its messenger is welcomed in all of these situations, the word of God retains its power. It is the word of God because um, as the word of God, it retains its power. Herman Ritterboss had said this, This service in the gospel can also mean suffering and tribulation, but it is not lawful to withdraw from it. 
We are called to endure as Paul endures. I mentioned last week how this was what fueled the Reformation, right? As um, men from all throughout Europe, especially, would come to Geneva, Calvin's Geneva, to hear, to learn, to be taught the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then they were sent out, many of them, to die. And I had mentioned that there were these um, young French boys who had come to Geneva, trained and sent And then they were soon imprisoned and sentenced to death for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the letter that Calvin wrote to them as they are awaiting their own death. He says this, Even so, my brothers, be confident that you shall be strengthened according to your need by the Spirit of our Lord Jesus, so that you shall not faint under the load of temptations, however heavy it may be, any more than he did who won so glorious a victory, that in the midst of our miseries, it is, uh, it is an unfailing pledge of our triumph. Since it pleases him to employ you to the death in maintaining his quarrel, he will strengthen your hands in the fight and will not suffer a single drop of your blood to be spent in vain. And though the fruit may not at all at once appear, yet in time it shall spring up more abundantly than we can express. But as he hath vouchsafed you this privilege, that your bonds have been renewed, and that the noise of them has been everywhere spread abroad, it must needs be, in despite of Satan, that your death should resound far more powerfully, so that the name of our Lord be magnified thereby. For my part, I have no doubt, if it please this kind Father to take you unto himself, that he has preserved you hitherto, in order that your long continued imprisonments might serve as a preparation for the better awakening of those whom he has determined to edify by your end. For let enemies do their utmost, they shall never be able to bury out of sight that light which God has made to shine in you in order to be contemplated from afar. That's the kind of power, the kind of encouragement that Paul could say to Timothy, that Calvin can tell to these young men, That though you may die for this truth, it is the truth nonetheless, and it is worth dying for. And God will take your death, he will take your suffering, and use it for the advancement of his gospel. Paul's chains did not mean the gospel was bound. These French boys, their chains did not mean the gospel was bound, but through them, God's word would advance. That is the mystery of the gospel. Thirdly then, and related, is the mission of the gospel, right? So Paul in chains is thankful that God's word is not bound. And he gives his purpose in verse 10. He says, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is the mission of the gospel. It's the mission that Paul had. It's the mission that the church continues to have to proclaim the gospel that God's elect, those whom he has called and loved before the foundation of the world, may come into the salvation that he won for them in Christ. I endure everything for the sake of the elect. And it's interesting that Paul refers to the church here as the elect. It's actually a great comfort for God's people today because it reminds us that we, the church, are not defined by the world, but ultimately by God. 
We are God's chosen. We are God's elect. This is our identity in relation to God. In relation to the world, we're pilgrims. In relation to the world, we're aliens and strangers. But in relation to God, we're chosen and loved. That's the the identity of God's people you see throughout the scriptures. We're a pilgrim people, wandering, waiting, and on our way to our heavenly country. But we're also today God's people, loved by him, chosen by him, elect pilgrims as his people. And God is gathering his people today through the word, through the gospel, by the proclamation of Jesus Christ. As this good news goes out, it doesn't go out as merely news that we hear, but news that transforms. Because by this news, as it is believed, we are brought into fellowship and union with Jesus Christ. By this good news, as we believe this word about Jesus, we come to know Jesus and to be known by him. Our lives are bonded to his. We come into union with him as his word is proclaimed. This is why Paul says that he he endures everything, that the word might go forth, that the elect would come in and obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. That's its location, right? So this salvation is only found in Christ. And so by believing the message about Christ, we come to be found in him to receive that salvation. And he says that that salvation in Christ Jesus also comes with eternal glory. Eternal glory. Paul is reminding Timothy and the church that while believing this message may bring shame from the world, this message ultimately brings glory that is unfading, everlasting, eternal. It's suffering now, to reign with Christ later. It's, it's, it's shame now for glory to come. That's the basic pattern of the Christian life. And Paul is proclaiming then, and the, or calling the church, to do everything for the sake of God's elect. And therefore the church must never lose sight of the gospel as the power of God for salvation. As we desire God's elect to be gathered from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, we must never lose sight of the fact that the power of the church resides in the gospel that we have been entrusted with. The word, the truth. And therefore, a wordless, a gospelless church is no church at all. A church that is a mere philanthropic entity a church that merely engages in social causes, a church that merely looks for social transformation, but has no word, is no church at all. And the significance of this point is actually seen all around us. I'm sure all of us actually saw the reality of this on our way to church this morning. Physically evident and worn on many churches is the rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ for social transformation and for um, humanitarian efforts. Now, those things are good, but that's not the church's ultimate mission. We bring the word, and with that, God's mercy and love and grace to a hurting and dying and needy world. But a church that has left the word for the sake of better Social engagement 
has ceased to be the church of God and has failed to continue in the mission that Paul left for his church. We then, as the people of God, must have our eyes set upon the word, the gospel. And as that word then is to be proclaimed as it transforms the lives of God's people. It's this that motivated the great missionary William Carey. Says this, uh, Carey had written this in 1793 as he went to India to proclaim uh, the gospel there. He said, when I left England, my hope of India's conversion was very strong, but among so many obstacles it would die unless upheld by God. Well, I have God and his word is true. Though the superstitions of the heathen were a thousand times stronger than they are, and the example of the Europeans a thousand times worse, though I were, I were deserted by all and persecuted by all, yet my faith, fixed on the sure word, would rise above all obstructions and overcome every trial, God's cause will triumph. This is a man whose eyes were pierced to see the word of God and lived accordingly for the mission of the gospel. And lastly, then we want to think about the mold of the gospel, right? A mold is something that presses something into a certain shape or pattern. Uh, think of baking cookies, right? You have those cookie molds and you press it into the dough or whatever that might be. I guess it's dough. That's probably for bread. Um, clearly, I don't know very much about baking, but I do know about these molds. Um, and they make great shapes for holiday baking and so on. Well, the cross of Christ is at the center of God's gospel, and it is the mold that the church is pressed into. This is often referred to as a cruciform life, shaped by the cross of Christ. And this is what Paul is getting at in verse 11 through 13, in what has sometimes been called um, an early creed or an early hymn in the church. It says in verse 11, The saying is trustworthy, for... If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now you'll notice the first three move from the past to the present to the future. If we have died with him is a past statement, or in the past tense. If we endure with him is in the present tense. If we deny him, is in the future tense. And so Paul is, is speaking about the Christian life as it unfolds. And he says that the Christian life begins with dying with Christ. It is a matter of dying to this world. Paul himself says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Paul is saying that, that the Christian then, as we die and have died with Christ, we do so with the great hope of one day living with him. Now at present, as we have died with Christ, so too we begin to know what life is in Christ. We come to live in Christ already, but the fullness of life that awaits us only comes when Christ comes again. And so this is the very basic mold, the basic pattern of the Christian life as we have the gospel shaping us. Dying with Christ to be to live with him forevermore. Again, remember, we are to remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And therefore, we die with him that we might live with him as well. 
And the guarantee between those two points, dying with him and living with him, is founded upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are dying with the one who is raised from the dead so that we might live with him forever and ever. But we then, at present, Paul says, if we endure, we will also reign with him, right? So Paul sees the reign of the church and of God's people as not something present, but will come. And as I said earlier, the normal mode of operation of the church today is one of endurance, one of bearing under a great load as we look to Jesus Christ. Believers endure hatred by all for Christ's sake. They persevere in tribulation. They endure great sufferings and temptation and patiently endure suffering for doing good. And this endurance that we are all called to is meant to define us throughout our entire lives. And therefore we endure now that we might reign with Christ when he comes again. Reigning for the church is not now but in the future. And therefore we ought then not to think of the need to endure as something strange or odd, but rather as the normal mode of operation for God's people today as we confess Christ and as we live our lives upon the bedrock of his gospel. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Now, the first two, then, of of this creed are positive. The next two are in the negative, right? Thirdly, if we deny him, he will also deny us. Paul is saying that if you are ashamed of Jesus Christ, and if you turn from him in this life, then so, too, Jesus will deny you before his Father. That's what Jesus himself taught us. But those who are ashamed of him today, Christ will deny before his father. And so this stands as a warning to Timothy, a warning to the church to hold fast and to think about the significance of denying Christ. It may seem like a great weight, right, that often we're pressed into to deny him, to be ashamed of him, to be silent about him before other men. But Paul is reminding us of the greater weight that to deny him means for him to deny us. And therefore, let the world deny us. Let the world hate us. Let the world shame us. We desire that Christ would own us as his own. For him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. For him to confess our name before his Father in heaven. With that reality in our minds, that future coming, that promise of Christ, we therefore have every reason not to deny him today, but to live boldly, courageously, to say with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. And then Paul concludes this hymn by saying, if we are faithless, right, if there are times where we abandon Christ, if we do uh, reject him, deny him, walk away from him, bring shame to his cause, He remains faithful. Now, there's a lot of debate if this is meant positively or negatively. He remains faithful in that he will judge his people. Or he remains faithful that in the midst of their faithlessness, he is faithful. He will maintain his cause and he will bring them back. I'm inclined to the positive view. I'm inclined to think here Paul is giving Timothy courage that though at times he may falter, though at times he may fall, though at times he may succumb, to the shame of the world and be defined by it. Instead, he must be reminded 
that his Savior, Jesus Christ, remains ever faithful to him. Herman Ritterbaugh says that what we see here is the fact that the faithfulness of Christ does not correspond to whether or not his people are faithful, but that his faithfulness is infinitely more and infinitely greater. Therefore, we would be in great error if we tried to measure what Christ is and what he will do from the point of view of what man is and does, right? Men are faithless at times. Men uh, are not loyal. But Christ ought not to be measured by what men can do. Rather, what will happen to me, even in unfaithfulness, must be seen from the point of view of who Christ is in his righteousness, but also in his faithfulness. He does not let me go when man lets me go. He does not become impatient when his own become impatient. His faithfulness never ends, even when his people forsake their faithfulness. There is always a return to him. And please hear that. In this life, right, as we're expounding what it's going to look like living a life founded upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's hard. And and often we're praying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, strengthen my weak knees, cause me to continue steadfast. And in the midst of that, please know this, there is always a return to Christ. An appeal to his faithfulness is always possible. That is the great comfort that Timothy is left with from the Apostle Paul. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is, then, the mold of the gospel. Dying with him that we might live with him. Enduring that we will reign with him. Maintaining the cause, not denying him. And remaining faithful. And even in the midst of that, Christ remaining uh, faithful to us. I want to conclude by just reminding us um, that a few months ago we had our 20th uh, anniversary as a church um, as we gave thanks to the Lord uh, for planting this church 20 years ago, establishing us as a congregation here. And at that um, um, event, um, I was asked to speak on your vision for the future of the church. And I made the point that the future of the church is not my vision, um, but it's laid down for us in Scripture what we are to be about, what we are to be centered on, what we are to do. Now, of course, we're not, giving, we're not given every detail, but the principles of what ought to guide us and lead us as God's people. And it was this verse that I landed upon as I reflected upon the future of Messiah's Reformed Fellowship, specifically the call to remember Jesus Christ. That is our desire here at Messiah's Reformed Fellowship, that ever before our eyes, ever before our minds, ever before our hearts, would be the risen one, the risen ruler, the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, as we think about our future, as we press on, not just to a new day tomorrow and to a new week, but we look forward to generations to come serving and loving the Lord here, may our desire and may our actions always be to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, from the offspring of David. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that a gospel that is true, 
a gospel that is right and a gospel that has founded us as a people. Father, we ask then that we would be those who love the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so much so that we are filled with a desire to share this news and to be on mission for this gospel, and that we would endure all things for the sake of this word, because we know that it is true. It is the word that has bound us to our Savior as we have believed it, and in believing that word, been united to him. Father, in love for our Savior, we pray then that we would hold fast to that word with the great hope that if we endure with him today, we will reign with him when he comes again, ushering in a new creation that we might be his people in his presence forever and ever. And so, Father, strengthen us and keep us faithful that we might always remember him, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, in whose name we pray. Amen.